You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, and streaming across the globe at kpfk.org. Radio powered by the people. Well, good afternoon, friends and listeners. Um, this is Jim Lafferty. You're listening now to the Lawyers Guild Show, and I'm joined by my co-host and dear friend Maria Hall. Hi, Maria. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. I think so. Yeah. No. And you too. Yes, of course. Yeah, I know. Well, that's good. Uh, Maria seems to always be doing good, no matter how overworked she is. She's always got a good I, I simply moan and groan when that happens to me. Well, uh, another good show. And, and before we get started, by the way, let me, and again, uh, you know, I, you know, this is fun drive if you've been listening, but we're not going to take more than five minutes from the whole show to, to quote unquote pitch you. But I, as we start off, I just thought it might be good to, to think about something. I think most of our shows are pretty darn good. And certainly I know today's show is. You're going to hear from a couple of folks um, well, and as, as you do most weeks on the Lawyer's Guild show, that you're not going to hear anywhere else much. Uh, the kind of people we have on often can't get on the mainstream media. Um, and uh, if that's a value to you, and I think it should be, because it's unfettered and uh, uncensored media this way, uh, I make a deal with you. Uh, give us a call during the show at some point uh, and pledge. If you haven't paid your membership dues, they're, you know, they're only good for a year, you know. And you can be a full-fledged member here for $25. Well, take this opportunity during the Lawyers Guild show today to renew your uh, membership. Uh, you're not a member if it's been more than a year. So please do that. If you're sitting there uh, with um, having done rather well lately uh, on the stock market or, or, or on the horses or some way, uh, share it with us. Uh, you can pay for those people who are listening. We're happy that they're listening but really can't afford to maybe do anything. They're having enough trouble paying the rent. And, uh, and so, uh, but, but support us. You can do that by calling us at 818-985-5735. That's 818 818- Nine eight five five seven three five, or or go to the kpfk.org website. There are a lot of ways there. We thank you, by the way, when you do that. Lots of premiums, as we call them, thank you gifts, if you will, um, whatever it might be. Um, last week and this week, we're sort of featuring a, a Tom Hartman's uh, how the how the elections are being stolen from us, how the vote is being stolen from us, and that's a seventy five dollar uh, gift uh, contribution to us. We'll we'll get you sent that book. But as I say. Uh, I like to think that it uh, that the, the the station itself is the gift. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening, and you, and you wouldn't want to support us anyway. So please uh, do give us a call. Uh, do go to our website. Do make a contribution today. Uh, you know, we have, still have all these hardworking employees here who could make, frankly, a hell of a lot more money if they went somewhere else. Uh, they believe in the station. Uh, I hope you do. So support us. That's that's your way to be part of the family. Well, all right, Maria, I, I think uh, you're going to introduce the first topic we have today. But remind our listeners first what the uh, second topic will be as well. Yes. Thanks, Jim. Well, first, we'll revisit the billion-dollar NFL concussion settlements from 2015. And we have with us MD and JD Prem Reddy, who will be talking with us about whether retired football players with extensive brain disease have found the justice they were promised. And then, in our second half hour, we'll speak with film producer and director Rick Goldsmith about his latest documentary, Stripped for Parts. American Journalism on the Brink, which tells the story of a hedge fund that's plundering newspapers around the country and the journalists who are fighting back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, it's, I, don't, I don't know that we planned it this way, but uh, yesterday or Sunday, whatever it was, being the, uh, being the Super Bowl, it's, it's kind of an appropriate uh, first topic to have today. So why don't you get us started with it, Maria? Yes, will do. Okay, well, of course, whether you're a football fan or not, it was really hard to miss the hype of Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) The big money ads, the fanfare, and of course, the players in their helmets and all that protective gear, which really underscores how dangerous the game is. 
And more recently, the medical profession has discovered that football is even more dangerous than we previously thought. Repeated blows to players' heads, even with helmets on, are linked to progressive incurable diseases that aren't immediately visible, like Alzheimer's, ALS, and dementia. You may recall in 2011, hundreds of retired players filed lawsuits against the NFL for brain damage. In 2015, the NFL agreed to a billion-dollar settlement promising to pay and provide medical care for players with symptoms of certain brain injuries for a span of 65 years. But two weeks ago, on January 31st, the Washington Post published an investigative report called The Concussion Files, The Broken Promises of the NFL Concussion Settlement. The report details tragic deaths of retired players whose claims were denied because the network of doctors hired as the gatekeepers of the settlement funds claimed they didn't meet the criteria. But then only later did everyone find out that their autopsies confirmed the severe diseases that the players and their personal physicians had been insisting they were suffering from all along. Here to explain the science and the law behind all of this is attorney Prem Reddy. Before earning his law degree, Prem earned his medical degree with a psychiatry externship and research. Today, he coaches other lawyers about how to speak to judges, juries, and the public about brain diseases with the hope that the law and medicine can help bring justice to those who have been injured. Prem Reddy, welcome to the Lawyers Guild Show. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Jim. Hey, well, welcome to have you, sir. Sure. So let's start out with some basics. When doctors talk about brain injuries from football, from repeated blows to the head, what kinds of injuries and diseases does it cause and why? That's a very good question. Uh, so the brain is uh, a little soft uh, matter and it's kind of in between uh, or held in between the skull uh, around and around the brain is like a CSF uh, fluid. So it's floating around in that fluid. And when you have sudden acceleration and deceleration or a collision, it just kind of moves and hits the front of the skull or the back of the skull, depending on how the force is applied. So when you have an injury, uh, you can either have a bleeding inside the brain or the nerves are teared or destroyed. And you have the byproducts of these tears, which are floating around and uh, sitting there in the brain. Also, whenever you have an injury, uh, inflammation occurs within the brain. And so this inflammation is a the body's reaction to the injury. And this uh, inflammation and all the byproducts have to actually be removed from the brain. Um, imagine now if you keep getting hits. And I'm not talking about the kind of hits that Travis Kelsey hit the coach on the sidelines. I'm talking about the real <laughs> hits, <laughs> right, the real ones. Uh, uh, so what happens is that, okay, you get a hit, right? So imagine if you get a tear or a bleed or something which is not to the effect of a concussion where they say, hey, take him out of the game. So there's some injury going on in your brain. You get back up and a few plays later, another hit. So you're really not having enough time to recover and recuperate. So these keep adding up and that also has an effect on, on the human brain. So let's just say, okay, you have a couple of hits and the game's over. Uh, you come back to practice maybe three or four days later or you're in the game a week later and you get some more hits. This happens week after week and it just keeps on piling up. And so you have all of this damage just being caused and not enough time to repair itself. So that in, it, in itself causes secondary brain damage uh, over a long period of time. Uh, now, I work with a uh, colleague of mine, uh, Martin Jerisat, a very good attorney, and he actually reads uh, so much medicine that I have to have to like read myself <laughs> to catch up with him. That's right. uh, yes. Uh, so he, we both deal with uh, personal injury and uh, traumatic brain injuries. And we see the same thing there as well, where a lot of these injuries are actually misdiagnosed or even undiagnosed. And that's kind of because you know, uh, you have to go with the symptoms of what the person is having. And most of the times we try to put them into a category. Okay, if you have A, B, and C, you have a concussion. The problem is you're getting hit and you kind of don't know where the damage is taking place in the brain. There's about 86 billion neurons in the brain and about uh, 100 trillion connections. <laughs> so you have to look for the symptoms. What is this person exhibiting? So sometimes you might see somebody that has a personality problem. Sometimes, you know, with the brain damage, when they're trying to make choices, 
they can't make that choice. So imagine if you have a concussion or some kind of a brain damage and you're out in your quarterback and you have to make the choice, make a throw, don't make a throw, make a move, don't make a move. It's not that you're not able to make the choice. You can't make it fast enough. Or let's just say responding to social cues, right? Mm -hmm. I got to know if the other person's making a joke or if they're just simply just, uh, you know, angry with me. If, if somebody's just making a simple joke and I blow up on them, can you just imagine the relationship problems that I would have? Mm -hmm. uh, what about, uh, you know, emotions, right? They might uh, just get angry for no reason or they might even end up not even having an empathy for the other person that they're, they should be feeling empathy for. And you'd be like, wow, this person's so rude. But the reality is they actually uh, are not able to do that because part of the brain is damaged. Mm -hmm. Or what about memory? You know, uh, it may not be so obvious. It might be just something subtle and it might make a effect. If they don't remember the plays on the field, they may call the wrong play. What about balance? So let's just say, you know, they're able to say that they get they get knocked out and like, hey, coach, I'm fine. They pass all the concussion tests. But there's some mild balance issues. So the quarterback is out there. He's, you know, uh, he's got to avoid that defensive lineman that's coming right after him. And if he's not able to make a twist or a move or in the, in the, in the motion of making a move, if he loses his balance, then it might affect him and he might fall back down again and have another concussion. And uh, some of the other symptoms would be like, uh, you know, even denying the deficits. It's not that they're being macho, like, hey, I want to get back in the game. Sometimes that brain part is affected and you're actually denying your deficits. So you have to look for these symptoms. I mean, you catch these symptoms, you should be mm -hmm. thinking, hey, maybe this person does have an injury. Yes, yes. In a long time, uh, you know, if it's not uh, cleared up then, you know, it, it just keeps on building up. Now, let me uh, let me ask you this, Attorney Reddy. Um, I suspect that a lot of uh, football fans say, oh, well, yeah, I know that sort of makes sense to us. But, you know, they've got better helmets now and better padding now. And, and there's certain rules you can't hit somebody in a certain way now. Hasn't that made the game a lot safer? Uh, and, and that's my, my first question. The second question I want to ask you specifically about what they were claiming in the lawsuit. But first tell us that is uh, I, I, I can't believe it's changed much, but maybe I'm wrong. You tell me. Uh, that's a very good point. So, yes, the game has become safer because uh, they've uh, tried to avoid certain plays that do have an effect mm -hmm. uh, on, uh, you know, uh, uh, hitting the quarterback. Yeah. There's a lot of penalties, right? So it has made the game safer. And there are sensors on the helmets which do help. But is it enough? I don't know, because you still have concussions. Remember last year, Tua Tango-Vailova had two concussions, right? Sure. So are we avoiding it completely, you know? So it still goes on. So right. more needs to be done. More needs to be done. All right. Well, going back, just to remind our listeners of the lawsuits against the NFL that started uh, around 2011, what were the uh, specific damages that the players were claiming they were suffering as a result of these blows? And, and what were they demanding in response to those damages? You know, uh, as I was reading this, I was asking myself that question. What exactly are they demanding? What yeah. exactly are they looking for? You know, um, it seems like they're crying for help, and they just don't know how to say it. Um, those who are able to say it, they're able to hear from them. But a lot of people, sometimes they don't want to bother other people when they're feeling depressed or just something's not right with their brain, and they just commit suicide because they take it out on themselves instead of taking it out on somebody else. So uh, we're going by the symptoms of those that are complaining. And uh, what they're looking for, what the lawsuit actually was looking for, was financial damages and also sure. for medical care for healthy players who develop the symptoms later. Ah. The, yeah. And the problem would be, you know, if, if players have behavior problems or symptoms like uh, depression or rage, they actually have to develop dementia before they qualify for settlement benefits. So can you see that problem? So if yeah. I have these, unless I qualify for dementia under the rules, I don't get those benefits. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And can you describe the settlement terms? Um, I believe it was potentially, it could be billions of dollars over about a 65-year span. We're now about nine years into that. Um, can you briefly describe the, the settlement terms and just what was entailed in that, that settlement? Right. So going from the article, uh, the NFL admits to no wrongdoing. So that's one of the things. And the NFL also promises to um, pay every player... Uh, who is uh, uh, diagnosed with dementia or other brain or other brain diseases linked with concussions, 
uh, and they've also paid out about $1.2 billion so far to 1,500 players and families in the last seven years. Uh, also, the players have to be found with uh, CTE. Uh, I mean, the, the players who have actually had CTE the decade before the settlement was opened, they also would be paid. And um, there's a term in there where they can actually go back and revisit the diagnostic criteria every 10 years as to what dementia is. Uh, but I think they used uh, one up in 2021 when they were talking about the race uh, bias that they missed. So I don't know when the next uh, uh, review would come up. It should come up soon because it's really not a good uh, criteria that they're using because uh, they're also using what's called the CDR, the clinical dementia rating. And no matter what you use, it's just not enough because it's more than just dementia. You know, um, if somebody is able to drive and um, say uh, work, well, they're Considered, hey, you can't have dementia because you're able to drive and work. But did they really go and ask them, when you're driving, did you forget where you were going? Or when you're working, did they actually give you a different job before you were working, you know, a high level job? Now they gave you a desk job. I mean, they got to go into more details on that. So it's not mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, and also, um, uh, they say that you, they have to, the players have to prove dementia uh, is not caused by something else, that it actually was caused by. Uh, it's the NFL's uh, play in the NFL because something could be like uh, bl high blood pressure or diabetes and all these things. Like they have to prove that that their dementia was not caused by this. It's kind of hard, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. It is kind of easy if you keep track of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, all as Maria reported uh, at the start of the show, a couple of weeks ago, the Washington Post uh, did a piece on all of this. Um, and one of the points they noted was that there have been many critics of how the uh, NFL settlement has in reality played out. You know, it, it looked awfully good on paper, but how has it really played out? And in particular, the article points out that many uh, former players uh, suffering from dementia and CTE, and you'll remind us what that is, have been denied help. Uh, why? Well, okay. Uh, only to find out after they died, and then there's an autopsy that they should have not. They should have been compensated. It was wrong to deny them the help. Uh, so, talk to us about this uh, deficiency, if you will, in the settlement. Right. So, um, let's just say somebody does have an injury, and they say, like, go to an ER or something, right? And they do a scan, like a CT scan, is what they usually do. It doesn't really check for a bleed. Uh, I mean, sorry, it checks for a bleed, but it doesn't check for anything else. Mm. So you can't really see the signs or symptoms of uh, TBI or a traumatic brain injury uh, or even chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's CTE. Uh, if you do imaging, let's just say, uh, if you do an MRI, say, and they slice it, at, and the MRI is a slicing of the brain and imaging of that. So if you do it at five millimeters, uh, you might be missing it because, you know, at, at, if you do a two millimeter slice, a thinner slices, you can probably find it. But if you're doing thick slices, you're missing a lot of the brain area. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. you do this imaging and you don't find anything. You're like, hey, he's fine. Uh, and if you want to do other imaging, it's just too expensive. And you may or may not find uh, uh, symptoms on the on, or findings on the radiographs there. But the real thing is, what is the patient telling you? Or what's the client telling you? What are the symptoms he's having? So the autopsy is the only definitive way because you can actually take a slide uh, and, you know, do the staining and, and find out exactly what's going on. Uh, because when they go to the doctor, what they tell them is, okay, you know, maybe your symptoms are because of B12 deficiency. Take some B12 <laughs> or you just have diabetes, you know, control your diabetes. You, you're always angry. I get it. So they're not factoring the fact that, you know, maybe the front part of his brain is affected. So now he can't overcome his impulses. So he may have been an angry person, but he was careful not to show his anger on his loved ones. Now he's just doing it all the time, you see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just in denial. So maybe they don't want to even go in and seek help. So if they're not seeking help, you know, you feel like, hey, there's nothing wrong with this person. But when they die and then they actually do the autopsy, that's when they find that. And there's such a delay between uh, the time that the doctors are diagnosed them and from the time that they're receiving funds, and those funds now have to be used to treat the person, you see? So in uh, all that time, they might just pass away. Yeah. Dear, dear. I know. It's, it's really tragic that you can't tell the extent until after they die, unfortunately, in an autopsy. So looking back, thinking about uh, prevention of such uh, diseases, because I imagine that over all of this time period, um, it also can be confused with normal aging, for example. 
So how can we start out, um, you know, should parents be worried if they're playing parent, if their kids want to play sports or, you know, are there steps that they can take to reduce the harm um, or just, or do you recommend not playing sports at all, which then has other impacts, you yeah, know, what are sort of your thoughts about, you know, how people should be thinking about this in order to protect their kids' future? Yeah, especially with contact sports, right, yeah. So, so I'll I'll have to balance the medical hat and my lawyer hat on. I'll give you the facts. I'll let the I'll let the audience decide for that. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's actually a very good question. Um, so, when I was watching ESPN one day, I won't name the names, but one analyst who was a former NFL player uh, had to uh, have a conversation with his son. And the conversation was, uh, was it, is it going to be basketball? Is it going to be football? And he wanted the son to uh, make his own decision. And, and the son said basketball. He was like, oh, my God. yes, thank you. Thank you. He was just so happy. He didn't want to force it on them because he played the game. He made money off the game. And so that, that's just what that is. But each parent has to make their own decision, and there are steps that can be taken. For example, uh, make sure that you know if it's uh, you know little league or or, I mean, or in a high school or uh, college level, you want to make sure that there's proper sensors on the helmets, there's protective gear, and there's proper protocols. You know, for a concussion, do they have that protocol in the NFL down there? Like, hey, if this happens, do you know what questions to ask? Do you have? A medical staff on, on, on site, like do you have a doctor or EMS if something happens, can we take them to for treatment? Uh, is the staff that's there trained for treating TBIs or concussions? So these are some of the things you can do. And also when they do have symptoms, let's just say, you know, a, a child goes and plays a game and comes home, you kind of notice something's off. Uh, write those symptoms down. Keep a log of those things, you know, either the person themselves or family members. Hey, you know what? This person repeated the same information five times, even though I told them, hey, did you say this before? They said, I don't remember this. So keep a track of all the symptoms that you have, because when you do go to a doctor uh, at that time, they may not ask you all the questions and they just spend like a few minutes or an hour with you. And I mean, I've gone to the doctor many times and I wanted to tell the doctor something and I've forgotten to tell the doctor myself. So when you have that list, it's easier to remember and tell the doctor and now they can put that in the report. So have a family member go with the person to the doctor to tell the symptoms. Another thing is uh, one of the reasons they were denied in the NFL uh, lawsuit was that they said that they had pre-existing symptoms. So avoid that. Uh, Counter for that. So if the child has diabetes or maybe blood pressure or, or something like that, Note that, hey, this person's diabetes was under control, their blood pressure was normal before, and these are the ranges before, and after the injury, these are the ranges. So have that clear before and after picture of the symptoms. Um, that way you can you can give that to the doctor and they can assist saying, okay, hey, this is not a pre-existing because these are the symptoms. So um, imaging can be normal, so we can't depend on the imaging, so go with the symptoms and watch for any cognitive decline in your child. If anything is off, just kind of watch it because it can repair itself. The brain can repair itself. So oh, don't get alarmed every single time it happens. Just watch for it. And if something is bothering, go talk to a person that's trained in the area. Not all physicians are trained. So you want to find somebody that uh, has been trained in concussions or uh, brain injuries. And also one more thing is make sure that they're not self-medicating. Uh, I had a client um, uh, who's... Um, Dad was saying that, you know, my son has got a complete Tylenol bottle in his car and just keeps popping it all the time for headaches. So little things like that will tell you, hey, he might be saying he's okay, but he's taking so many pills. So watch for that as well. You know, I wonder, uh, too, um, I don't know if we know the answer to this question. Uh, What is the incidence of of, uh, children playing football, tackle football, uh, running into each other at great force and so forth? What is the incidence of uh, brain damage as a result of that sport? And doesn't it raise the, the whole question of whether or not we're, by allowing uh, children to play the sport, if the incidences are pretty high, if, if there's a considerable chance of having some damage to the brain, not necessarily the most severe, but nevertheless some damage to the brain, uh, I mean, that's almost child abuse if that's the case. But So how, how bad is it uh, if somebody plays you know, high, high school or, or uh, football, tackle, and then uh, gives it up, goes about their life. Do we know anything about the incidents of damage uh, from that experience? 
Uh, no, not not really. I'm mm-hmm. not aware of the incidences in that. And even if there is a statistic, is it really complete? Because are people reporting this? Uh, the, a lot of the reasons we like what we like is uh, not just because I like it, because it's a lot of factors that go in. Mm-hmm. Is it a way out for me? Like, uh, uh, you know, it gives me control. It gives me some kind of a sense of uh, uh, stability. Like, you know, if I work out in the gym, it makes me feel good. So if I play this game, it makes me feel good. Or I have my buddies around me. It gives me a system to work with, something to do. Sure. Uh, or uh, maybe my dad plays football and I'm playing football because I like that. My society plays football. You know, I come from uh, Southeast Texas, the area where Jimmy Johnson was. <laughs> but they say that, you know, boys and girls are born uh, here catching footballs. <laughs> so is it, is it because of uh, uh, society's, you know, pressure that they like it? Because if you go to Europe, they might like, like soccer more. So. Mm-hmm. We gotta deal with those pressures as well. So, with all these out there, are you going to uh, report the symptoms? Because I love this game. I love it. I just, you know, I want to be like my idol. And that is that driving you more to minimize your symptoms? So, are we really getting the statistics out there? Yes. All right. Well, and I guess that that lastly, um, we just have a couple of minutes left. Where where can people learn more about brain injuries in general? if they're concerned because of what they or some member of their family has been exposed to. And, and, and also how do people get in touch with you or your firm if they want to talk about all this with you? Yeah, thank you. So um, there's a lot of websites out there. Uh, the CDC has information, uh, sites like the Mayo Clinic has got a lot of information. Um, and I would recommend you to um, our audience to look at a lot of research articles which are coming out um, because there's a lot of research coming out on, on this uh, as we speak, and things change by the minute, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, and every parent, I would really uh, like them to d- make an informed decision for themselves. So uh, empower yourself with reading and reading and reading and educating yourself. Only you can make the best decision for your child. Uh, so uh, that, that's all I can say about that. Uh, and uh, I also uh, do put up some YouTube videos uh, on my own um, about different parts of the brain and how to how to handle brain injury and how to how do family members as well handle from brain injury because it's a mm-hmm. familial thing. Uh, for example, if um, let's just say uh, a person in the NFL has a concussion and has a brain injury and he's just blurting out and getting angry with the kids, yeah. maybe the wife can step in and say, "Hey, hold on, honey. You know what? Uh, don't worry about this. Uh, I I got it. I'll take care of the kids." So some kind of intervention. Yes. Uh, if you learn these things, then you know maybe they can just kind of calm down and be like and not have to feel sorry for themselves and can they get in touch with you through that youtube site that you have or yes so you can go to my website it's just uh, readyslawfirm.com that's r-e-d-d-y-s l-a-w-f-i-r-m.com and all my information's out there oh wonderful well my goodness yes thank you so much I'm ready, JD, MD. It's always so wonderful to talk to you. And especially you're so passionate about educating people and really empowering people to learn more. So we so much appreciate you being here and hope to bring you back on again very soon. Sure. And thank you for your work in the meanwhile. Really, thank you. I want to go doctor, lawyer. Thank you. My goodness. Thank you very much. All right. Um, We're now going to, well, let's just wait a minute or so. And remind everyone, use that minute or two, and then we'll be you know, back with programming again. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a time when we're asking our listeners to contribute to the health and welfare and uh, continuation of this statement in health, this station in a healthy um, way. Um, the way you do that, of course, you, you give us a call at 818-985-5735 or to go to kpfk.org and you'll see many ways there. We thank you when you make a contribution. If you haven't made any contribution at all in the last year, well, then your membership has actually lapsed. Um, and so for 20, as little as $25, you could become uh, renew it. And please do do that at the very least. And um, uh, and for that matter, if you're doing well these days, consider renewing your membership or, or making a contribution at a much, much higher rate. We sure thank you for that. Our underpaid employees will thank you for that. Um, we all will. Uh, the bills have gotten higher for us as they have for everybody else. We're part of the movement. I try to make that point every week when we talk about these things. 
um, we're as much a part of the movement because we're kind of the, the voice of the movement. We're the, the propagandists, if you will, I guess, for the movement, the progressive movement in Los Angeles. Uh, their voices are heard here on this station week in and week out, and they don't get a chance to do that on you know, CNN or Channel 2, for that matter, most of the time. That way they can produce, uh, that way they can promote people coming to their demonstrations, coming to their meetings, contribute financially to their work. So when you contribute to us, you're contributing in the broad sense to the movement for progressive social and economic change here in Los Angeles. 818-985-5735. Marie and I ask you to please do that. When you do it during the Lawyers Guild show, we kind of get a pat on the back for it. So we thank you if you do it right now. Um, and then we'll take a very now a very brief station ID break. And then we're going to be back with you on a... Uh, well, a rather scandalous story, really, of what's happened to news, what's happened to journalism in this country, and how it's rapidly getting diminished more and more and more. So stay tuned. Support comes from UCLA's Center for the Art of Performance, presenting Magos Herrera on Saturday, March 9 at 8 p.m. at UCLA Nimoy Theater. A Latin American jazz vocalist, Herrera sings in Spanish, English, and Portuguese, blends in contemporary jazz with Mexican folk staples and Latin American melodies and rhythms. For more information and tickets at CAP. Dot UCLA.edu and KPFK. And as promised, we are right back with you. This is the Lawyers Guild Show. I'm Jim Lafferty along with my co host Maria Hall. And uh, now we get to an equally uh, serious, uh, I would say alarming problem. Uh, the downsizing of American news uh, reporting. You know, this year, uh, 2024, is, of course, a presidential election year in America. And as uh, yesterday's uh, New York Times put it, and I quote, as Americans prepare for an election year that will feature disinformation wars, AI-generated agitprop, and a debate over the future of democracy, the mainstream news industry once the de facto watchdog and facilitator of public discourse is struggling to stay afloat, close quote. And a further quote, even by the standards of a news business whose fortunes have plummeted in the digital age, the last weeks, the last weeks have been especially grim for American journalism, close quote. Of course, we've, we've heard much in the news recently about large layoffs of reporters at major papers such as the Washington Post and our own Los Angeles Times. Indeed, uh, while such cutbacks in employing uh, journalists has been going on for, well, some years now, nevertheless, the last year saw record numbers of such cutbacks in news reporters at major U.S. newspapers. And the same is true for major magazines like Time Magazine or National Geographic. The recent layoffs at the Los Angeles Times of at least 115 employees in the newsroom, nearly a quarter of its entire staff, was the largest such layoffs in the 143-year history of the LA Times. And it isn't just national newspapers and news magazines that are laying off reporters. According to Northwestern University's Medell School, an average of five local newspapers are closing every two weeks. And half of all counties in America, half of all counties in America are now, quote, news deserts with limited access to news about their hometowns. And of 1,100 public radio stations and affiliates in America, only one in five is producing local journalism anymore. So... Today, we're going to ask our guests why so many national and local newspapers and news outlets are lowering, uh, you know, laying off such record numbers of uh, reporters. What's the principal cause of these massive layoffs? Is it just money? And what can be done to reverse this dangerous situation? Dangerous because, as, as many great past leaders have noted, a free and flourishing press is really the foundation or cornerstone of our democracy. Without a vigorous and free press, 
democracy really wouldn't last very long. And we've seen that being true in country after country over time. Well, happily, our guest today is Rick Goldsmith. And Mr. Goldsmith is a twice Academy Award nominated filmmaker. Uh, he had co-directed The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. And his newest film, uh, which is what we want to talk about today, just released, is entitled Stripped for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink. It's the story of how a secretive hedge fund is plundering newspapers nationwide and the journalists who are fighting back. Well, Rick Goldsmith, a warm, warm welcome to the Lawyers Guild Show. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank Thanks you. So much, Jim. Oh, thank you, Rick. Rick, in a little bit, we're going to let our listeners actually hear a, a four-minute trailer from the movie of yours that's just been released, the, the movie Stripped for Parts. Uh, it, it's right on point, as I say, for today's topic. But what was it, first of all, that motivated you to do this uh, movie uh, regarding what is happening to news reporting and gathering today? Uh, tell us about your motivation. And then later, of course, we're going to uh, get into the causes of the growing layoffs in the mainstream print news media. But what inspired you? Well, I'm a news junkie. <laughs> I've been reading my daily newspaper every day of my life over breakfast since I was seven years old. And about seven, 20 years ago, I noticed the newspaper started to get thinner. And, thinner. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, it broke my heart. But I figured, like most people, that's just the way it goes. You know, market forces, changing reading habits, things change. And then in the spring of 2018, I saw an article online, of course, that said all the global capital was making so much money wrecking local journalism, mm. it might not want to stop anytime soon. Mm. And I thought, whoa, wrecking local journalism like it was intentional? Why would anybody want to do that? And then the article goes, went on to say that, that journalists at some of these all the global capital newspapers were rebelling. We're fighting back, criticizing their own, picketing, demonstrating against this hedge fund run by Wall Street billionaires with no apparent interest in journalism. Well, um, I thought to myself, I mean, journalists are known for not writing about themselves, about their own industry, of, of being un impartial. And now they're writing about their own profession and how it's being ruined, and they're fighting back. Hey, that's news, you know? <laughs> So that's how I got into it. Great. That's just great. Hmm. Well, I would love to ask a question here, Rick Goldsmith. Um, hedge funds and billionaires are clearly a, um, if not the, principal source of mass layoffs of journalists at newspapers and magazines. Can you tell us about the role these billionaires and hedge funds what are, what's the role that they're currently playing in this crisis of losing our our brethren uh, journalists. Well, first I want to make the point that hedge funds, they did not cause the crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a combination of changing market forces, up to the shrinking of the advertising revenue, Craigslist wiping out the revenue from the classifieds, which is a very large slice of, you know, legacy newspapers' income, and, and Internet giants like Google and Facebook getting all the digital ad revenue. So the hedge funds didn't cause the crisis, but they are profiting off the crisis. And they're speeding up the crisis. They're intensifying it. They're destroying the news ecosystem. And while the rest of the journalism world is working on solutions, you know, on, on saving or reinventing or rebuilding local journalism, these hedge fund owners are wrecking it. How? Well, they pioneered this Wall Street scheme called distressed asset investing. They put millions into distressed companies, could be anything, A-less shoe stores, pharmacy chains, mobile homes, and they figure out how to make money off of it. So like a junker automobile, they strip them of their parts, of their assets. In this case, in newspapers, it's the real estate, the newsroom buildings themselves, the printing presses. So they've made a big chunk of change already right off the bat. And then they, because they're not, they don't care about the journalism part of it. They just care about lining their pockets. So they drastically cut the newsroom staff, usually offering buyouts to the most senior reporters and editors. So, of course, you lose your institutional base there 
your you know your history, um, and then they turn these papers into ghost newspapers, you know, shadows of them former selves. So I I guess what what I'm saying is, while maybe a family run newspaper across the town is figuring how to not go broke, but still perform a, a service to the community, these hedge fund owners. And in the case of all the global capital, it's two main guys, Randall Smith and Heath Freeman. They're ripping the newspaper apart with no regard to the employees or the journalism or the communities they serve, just to line their pockets. And Smith and Freeman are known for then investing in other companies and buying mansions for their personal use, dozens of them, in Palm Springs, Florida, in the Hamptons on Long Island, New York. So, you know, your traditional newspaper publisher is trying to make a profit, but they're also trying to serve the community. Hmm. These guys are not trying to serve the community. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, before Maria uh, asks the next question, uh, actually, um, I, I, even though, I don't know, maybe I was going to ask, I'll, uh, we'll just kind of play it by ear here, but let's, let's stop and listen to this almost four-minute trailer from your new film, Stripped for Parts. Uh, and then we'll follow up with more questions for you. Uh, D'Angelo Jones in Master Control, my friend, could you play that now for our audience? Tomorrow will be the final edition of the Rocky Mountain News. For the last decade and a half, we've seen 1,800 newspapers disappear. The Denver Post isn't dying. Alden Capital is murdering the Denver Post. And not only the Post, but papers from coast to coast. I think we're facing an immense national tragedy if these newspapers go under. They saddle the business with debt, they pay themselves first, then they strip them for their parts. There are times in your life when you are thrust into a situation where are you going to stand up and risk everything or are you going to back down? The journalists themselves have finally realized if we don't tell this story, who's going to tell it? In the middle of covering one of the biggest stories in Colorado history, I've got a guy sending me a note asking me to cut some of the very people who are working on this story. I'm just not going to do it. We got bought by this mysterious company, Alden Global Capital, and it was a New York hedge fund. We had layoffs pretty much every six months. And we started finding out this was happening all over the digital-first media chain. You get to a point where everything has been cut already, and yet here comes another fiscal year, and here comes yet another 20% profit demand. I said, you're an investigative reporter. Why don't you dig into Alden and just write about who they are and what they're doing, because people don't know. All this stuff starts popping up. It's like, whoa, this is a little more than meets the eye. How many mansions does a guy need? They are literally stripping hundreds of millions of dollars from digital first media newspapers. One opinion page editor, a guy named Chuck Plunkett, just decided he'd had enough. The Denver Post has launched a revolt against its owner, New York-based hedge fund Alden Global Capital. The Sunday editorial pullout section of the Denver Post was an act of defiance and desperation. It's either stand up and speak up now or write your own obituary in two or three years. The Post editorial page editor Chuck Plunkett writes, as vultures circle, the Denver Post must be saved. It's one of the most courageous things I've ever witnessed in a 40-year career in journalism. It was on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, the Washington Post. It was covered in almost every national media outlet. Our members are here today to deliver a very simple message to Smith and Freeman. Sell this company and get the hell out of the news business. What Chuck Plunkett unleashed with that section was permission for journalists to raise their voices, to explain why journalism matters, and to warn the community that what would be lost would never be replaced. The number one job of a journalist is to hold people in power accountable for the decisions they make. It's not good enough to say it's going away because that's the way business works. 
Newspapers are not just any other business. They are the only private industry specifically named in the Bill of Rights. People need to know there's a problem and they need to know why it's happening. History will not judge us kindly. If one day we wake up to realize we failed to protect our community's right to know and in turn our very democracy. Oh my goodness! Well, that, that's it's. Uh, I look forward to seeing the whole movie, and we'll talk about how one could do that a bit later. But you know, I, you know, I, we've sort of assumed, or I assume certainly in my introduction, that this matters. That people ought to be losing sleep over this or something with all the problems of the world. So, uh, Rick, talk to us a bit about why it is so damn important that we have enough national, and local newsprint papers and magazines and and the journalists who gather and write the news and then gets printed up on, you know, newsprint, and uh, we, we read it uh, right holding it in our hands. I mean, there are, we'll talk about this in a little bit. There are other ways you can get your news these days. Why, why, why is this so important? The New York Times made a point of saying this is a presidential election year, and it's going to be a lot of disinformation circulating and what have you. So uh, and people have said, you know, without free press, there's no democracy. Explain that a bit. Talk to us about why, as a practical matter, it is so important that we have enough print journalism and investigative reporters uh, operating in uh, in our society today. Well, you know, it's not really a new concept. It goes no, but... back to the founding fathers. Um, James Madison said that a people's government without reliable information or the means of acquiring it was but a pro- prologue to a farce or a tragedy. The founding fathers, I mean, they believed that a free press was essential in this experiment in democracy. If there wasn't a free flow of information and ideas, how do you make, you know, an, an opinion, how do you make this democratic public that they were launching um, work? How do you make important decisions that affect your community, your state, your country, without understanding the complex nature of your society and the people who are running things? So that was that was going on, you know, in the 1700s. And then the newspapers came along, and Congress was smart enough to pass laws so that newspapers could be disseminated all throughout the country without your ability to pay, you know, without regard to ability to pay. And then in the 1800s, this, they started advertising in the newspapers, and it got a little bit more complicated. There was a plus and a minus. So you got these advertisements uh, creating, you know, a lot of money for the newspaper publishers, and they could hire lots of staff. And we went along for 100, 150, 200 years with that model, with these gigantic staffs that were covering our community, for better and for worse, some better than others. And then at the beginning of this century, in the beginning of the 2000s, that business model started to fail and we lost by year you know year after year those newsrooms shrunk from 400 to 200 to 100 you know they're less than half the size there's less than half as many journalists working today as there were 20 years ago Mm. so we got used to having this vibrant um these vibrant news organizations and this vibrant profession, journalism, to tell us what was going on, to make sense of the complex uh, social and political, uh, you know, events that were swirling around us. And now that's going away, and you see it with the the garbage that's uh, that's on the, um, you know, on, on on social media, and less and less journalism. And people are no longer being able to make sense of this even more complex every year world that's around them. Mm-hmm. So you can't expect us to make intelligent decisions if you don't have the, you know, the fabric of what's going on in your community put into some sort of context by these journalists who are doing the work for us. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are in danger of losing, and if we lose that, I fear for the efficiency of our democracy. 
Well, and you 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 wonder. I was just sitting listening to you and wondering uh, whether guys like Donald Trump would have the kind of base and support and uh, rather uh, you know um, uh, culture support that he has if. More people and fewer and fewer people are getting it from their news. If more people were getting their news uh, and views from a responsible uh, print journalist as opposed to any wacko that has a, uh, a uh, you know, a, a something on the social media. But I'm sorry, Maria, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, all great points. <clears throat> um, Rick Goldsmith, I wanted to ask. Um, your film, Stripped for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink, documents the struggles of journalists and their supporters to keep their newspapers alive. Have some of these struggles been successful? And if so, can you tell us about an example? Well, Melissa, there's one thing, and we cover this in the film. We cover a few of the, the struggles between the hedge funds and the, and the journalists in the film, and one that was uh, marginally successful, it was actually successful at the time, was Alden went to take over the whole Gannett chain. You know Gannett mm. from uh, USA Today is their, you know, their biggest paper, but they have local papers all throughout the country. And because of the reporting that had been done by Julie Reynolds is one of the reporters in our film, uh, supported by the News Guild, the union that, that represents uh, news, news, um, you know, journal, uh, news, newsmen and women, newspaper men and women, uh, because she and others had done that work, all the global capital, by the time they went to take over Gannett in 2019, they were a dirty name. You know, it was like all the global capital destroyer of newspapers. Mm. That's what they were known as. When a couple of years earlier, nobody had ever heard of them. So when they tried to take over Gannett, they started to lose the public relations <laughs> because even the board at Gannett, who would have um, you know, profited handsomely from a buyout because all those board members you know, own a lot of stock, they were against it. And more than that, the shareholders were against Alton Global Capital because they already knew from some incidents that we also cover in our film uh, of some things that had happened at the Denver Post the previous year. They knew what it meant. As one of the board members said, this was, we knew from reading these articles by Julie Reynolds and other people, this was a movie coming to a theater near you if they took over our newspaper. So what happened in that fight was they actually beat back the what's called the unfriendly takeover bid by Alton Global Capital. Now, I say it was partially successful because it was absolutely successful at the time, but some months later, Gannett made a deal with yet another uh, private equity firm, and you know similar things happened. So, so it's, it's an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened then the following year with the... Tribune Company, owners of the Chicago Tribune and uh, and the Baltimore Sun and the New York Daily News, um, was they were was the hedge fund was successful. So it's a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. It's like you can't let your guard down because they will be after you. And now more than half of all the daily newspapers in this country are owned by hedge funds of private equity. Sure. My God. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the motto of the National Lawyers Guild is justice is a constant struggle. And it sure is. I'm wondering, we don't have a lot of time left, but I wonder, before we talk about where we can see your film and other work, um, there, have some, there have been some papers who have who've sort of uh, seemed to have figured it out for the moment. I'm thinking, of course, of the New York Times, and it may be unfair to hold them up as an example of anything that anybody else could do except what they did. But uh, remind us a bit, uh, the New York Times... Uh, recognizing what was happening around advertising, what was happening to classifieds, all sorts of things. Um, it, 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 it made some changes. Talk to us about that and whether that's realistic for other newspapers or not. Well, I think it's important to, to recognize that the New York Times, and, and, and possibly you could say this about the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. and to, to a certain extent the Washington Post, these are three national newspapers, and since the beginning of, you know, the Internet, those three have actually expanded their base mm -hmm. because they were not 
only New York Times was not, uh, even though it was always a national paper, it was predominantly bought in the New York area. Now they're bought all over the country. Same thing with the Washington Post. But with virtually every newspaper, and even the L.A. Times, which is a big and influential newspaper, their base is in Southern California. And uh, newspapers do not have a business model anymore that works. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough advertising dollars. And so we really have to start looking at other solutions, maybe public funding for journalism, which, you know, two decades ago, people would have said, oh, my God, you know, how could we, you know, get into bed with the government when we're supposed to be watchdogs of the government? Well, we have some models. NPR is, you know, it's not a model. Uh, you guys, even in KPFA, KPFK, it's, it's little, listen, response is not public uh, model, but there there are some things we're going to have to, as a society, figure out how to make this work and how to make journalism yeah. as a profession grow again yeah. instead of teaching. Well, well, and sadly, we are we are now pretty much out of time. Uh, just enough time to uh, when when can we see your movie, or can we see it already? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's something I just having seen the preview. I'm, I'm I'm dying to see, of course. So when can we do that? You know, uh, uh, strip for parts. American journalism on the brink. Tell us about okay. that. Okay. All right. Well, first, since we are close to out of time, what I'll just put out there is stripfourpartsfilm.com. Okay. Strip stripfourparts so dot. Yeah. If you want to stripfourpartsfilm.com. Gotcha. Um, Check that out, and you'll see where we're going. We just started our impact campaign. We're going all around the country. We're going to be in New York next month. We are definitely going to be down in Los Angeles. We don't have a date yet, but it'll be sometime probably in the next few months. Um, if you want to follow us. Uh, well, and you'll let us know so we can advertise it here on, I mean, you know, promote it here on our show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we are finding that every place we go, there are vibrant, uh, conversations at the end of the film about what should we do here? What about that? What about public funding? What can we do to stop hedge funds? So forth and so on. People are really up in arms about it. And um, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, no time more than now yep. as the, the downsizing is hot and heavy right now at all through the country. Well, Rick so Goldsmith. It's an important issue to keep, keep your listeners Eyes on the prize. Absolutely. Rick, uh, Rick Goldsmith, I, I thank you so much for this film. Couldn't be more timely. And, uh, and we will certainly promote it. And in the meanwhile, you, you watch for it, folks. You go to you know, stripforpartsfilm.com, and you'll find out when it's coming here. But we'll let you know that as well. We have to now say goodbye to you, Rick Goldsmith, because we've got to use the last minute or so here. Just about a last minute. Well, just enough. To, see, that we do that every week there when it's fun drive. Shame on us, I guess. We can't help it because we're so anxious to bring you the substance that we hate to take the time out to ask you for money. But that's frankly, has cost us. Uh, we don't do as well financially as we used to when we used to take 15 or 20 minutes of every show to pitch for money. So maybe you could thank us for that um, and help us out. Um, you know, uh, you share that same sense of the desperation that we're in so many political issues in this country today, how much we need stations like KPFK. Give us a call at 818-985-5735. Go to our website. Please pledge, my friends. Renew your membership. You could do it for as little as $25. Pay more if you can. Um, as speaking for myself and for Maria Hall, I'm Jim Lafferty. We're going to be back with you again on the Lawyers Guild Show next week. Uh, until then, <coughs> contribute to the station. Stay healthy. And, of course, stay active and stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. My name is uh, Leon. I've come up listening to KPFK. It's just, it's wonderful. I really got into it with Roy's show, Midnight to Six, Roy of Hollywood. Learned so much. It's an education. Just wonderful. It's one of the dangers of KPFK. When you turn it on, if you're into it, there's nothing else going to go on. But, uh, yeah, this is just a great place. Loads and loads of stuff. And no matter what you want, it's here. And uh, I, I wouldn't be myself without it. I mean, it's, I've got KPFK in my blood. KPFK, listener supported, 99% approved.
Hi, I'm Ashley Judd, and I believe that when we listen collectively, change happens. And I believe we should listen to girls and women. I believe that girls and women should speak for themselves, with and for each other, about their bodies, their rights, and their dreams. That's why I think woman-made media is so important, and why we all need to tune in to Feminist Magazine on KPFK. KPFK. KPFK's Fun Drive is in full swing, and right now your station could really use your help. Community support is the vital ingredient that's kept KPFK on the air.